Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 271. Today is Sunday, the 1st of April 2018. And this interview is with Rob McCargo, who's the Artificial Intelligence Program Leader at PwC and is a renowned speaker and thought leader on AI. He's mission-led and has been leading the debate about how AI can do good for the world. In this conversation, Rob and I look at the opportunities for AI in business, why and how businesses should onboard the technology, the need for ethics and data governance, the place for AI and digital transformation, the minefield of legislation, and much more. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss branding and all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host, and you'll find the show notes on my eponymous site, MinterDial.com. Enjoy the show. So Rob McCargo, I don't know if that's exactly how you like to pronounce it. I've sort of finally got it out of my mouth. Rob, great to have you on the show. We, we met um, thanks to Charlie Muirhead, and, um, and we had this wonderful dinner talking about artificial intelligence, and then we connected again, and I, I wanted to have you on the show because you are the resident expert on artificial intelligence at PwC. So in your own words, tell us what you do and how about your mindset, Rob? Well, Minter, it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, why don't I forget my name right? Very few people do. Uh, So I've got a fairly uh, interesting role here at PwC. Clearly, the way that this technology will impact us is vast, so this is occupying many business people's thoughts at the moment. So really, the, the, the mindset, what gets me out of bed in the morning is the opportunity to take some of the tremendous work that's happening out there from these great technologists that we have in the firm and elsewhere in our clients, but really translating this at scale into a business audience to make sure that we can advance the possibilities offered by this technology in a way that actually solves real problems, but also dispel some of the hype and some of the mythology that comes through in the media circulating around this technology. So I have wonderfully diverse fun days meeting a great cross-section of people across business, society, government, politicians and beyond, um, trying to translate this in a way that makes sense and uh, debunks some of this mythology. So I'm quite mission-driven. I I believe in the power of this technology to solve some of the most important problems that we face in society, but also I'm well aware of some of the risks of this technology uh, eroding trust in business further, causing more consequential damage in business and society. So I'm quite purpose-focused around what I can do as a communicator around this tech. That's what gets me out of bed in the morning. So, Rob, one of the things I was attracted to in our our chat when we first met was this notion of being mission-driven. You mentioned the mythology, and let's say that uh, as PwC in AI, you're known mostly as an accountancy, consultancy, the role of AI uh, within PwC, and, and, and how are you leading that charge in, in a world where there are so many people now talking about AI? What, what is the specificity, and how are you, you know, bringing PwC up in the AI world? Well, I think you're right. I think uh, we are commonly referred to as the accountancy firm PricewaterhouseCoopers, and of course that still remains a seriously important mainstay of our work today. But uh, we are doing quite a lot of interesting stuff. For example, we've just launched a drones practice. Uh, We've got a practice offering disruption services using virtual reality. Uh, There's all manner of interesting things we tend to be doing. Tell us about drones. My goodness, what's this about? 
Well, at the heart of this is um, the fact that drones are just a phenomenally interesting and scalable vehicle for collecting massive amounts of data. And we know that data is the fuel that feeds uh, these, uh, these algorithms to uh, make commercial sense, to drive business value, to save cost and manage risk. So, um, so we have practices uh, both in the UK, in Poland, and the US and the Middle East that are uh, effectively working to make use of this huge amount of data, whether it's in civil engineering projects or airport infrastructure or agriculture, um, using a, a variety of techniques, both deep learning neural networks, geospatial apps. It can read the particular pantone of a color of a blade of grass to determine if there's a likelihood of a water leak in that part of the county. So you can send in your maintenance crew. There's really tangible business value that takes together the data collection vehicles in things like drones and Internet of Things and harnesses that with artificial intelligence to help make sense for our, for our clients. It's true that in the end of the day, and you know, something I, I wrote a lot about in Future Proof, is that while AI is a specific topic, or let's call it a specific technology, vast though it may be, in reality it's generally working with other technologies. Isn't that, isn't that right? Yeah, we often refer to uh, the convergence of these different tech. Uh, we, we, in fact, we did a piece of work with uh, uh, surveying several hundred chief execs last year, and we, we looked at about 130 of these and pared this down to what we think are the essential eight. So just to trip these off quickly, apart from AI, drones, robotics, blockchain, IoT, virtual and augmented reality, and 3D printing, we believe are the big eight when they're harnessed together, drive the biggest best business benefits specifically. Yeah, I, I was in a podcast just last week with uh, Jeremy Waite, and he referred to a PwC research that said that Four out of five digital transformation projects are working, and and in essence, trying to implement AI as part of any digital, well, you know, not any, but as often part of the digital transformation project. Talking about AI, what kind of where are we in the implementation? How many companies are actually using AI, and is there within that any trends? In other words, is it typically the marketing area, customer service? Are the accountants? Getting into AI, where are we? So I still think we're in the early stages, the early foothills of this mountain. Um, there, there's uh, increasing confidence in business executives that believe this is the business advantage of the future. Um, but I would not say that this is something that's caught fire and is happening across the breadth of enterprises at scale at the moment. So in the main, there's a lot of organizations now taking the tentative first steps in terms of experiments applying this to a number of different use cases. Where we're seeing the, the, the most investment, the most focus, uh, probably no surprises is in financial services, banking, insurance, probably taking the leading the charge here. That's because there's a lot of data. Is that the thing that's driving it? Well, there's been a lot of data. There's been maybe a, a, an earlier start. Think about banks have been into algorithmic trading for many years. Um, so their data capability is probably further advanced than some sectors. They've had deeper pockets for breakthrough and innovation in technology. But I think this is starting to see other sectors quickly realize the benefits of this. So we see healthcare in particular being another promising area. We see automotive with the advent of driverless cars and mm-hmm. augmented supply chains starting to come on quite quickly as well. But the fact is, is all benefits can and will benefit from this technology in the coming years. So if I'm a fashion company or a cosmetics company, 
Is there a role for AI today, or is it should, should it be sort of parked for, for a few more years until the technology and the abilities, capabilities improve? Well, I think you could look at this without any, from an industry agnostic perspective. That you know, it doesn't make a, a great deal of difference from a back office perspective because you can apply this to a number of your functions, whether it's human resources for, say, recruitment sifting CVs, video interviewing, augmented with uh, AI, um, finance departments. So, yes, if you're cosmetics or you're fashion, you can still benefit from the back office side of things. Mm-hmm. But we are starting to see some interesting breakthroughs. I've seen a number of um, startups. We've worked with a number of scale-up businesses that are using AI to hyper-personalize the way that customers can get bespoke measurements at home, for example, to then... Uh, fast track their ability to order online mm-hmm. so um, yeah early stages of this and this some of them might be gimmicks in the long run but i think we'll start seeing the value coming through within a certain number of year time frame yeah at some level i mean the gimmick element helps sometimes just to do it without fear of failure because if it's sort of life-threatening then your no- notion of perfection comes in and as soon as you start trying to do perfect work then you you have less chance of actually making it come to life so if, if a company you're working with, Rob, you, you're, 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 you're starting with a company, a client, of PwC, and they say, hey, listen, we want to get into, we, have, we need an AI strategy. We need to implement AI. I've been reading about this, Rob. How do we do it? I think there, there is a risk that there's businesses that are jumping on the bandwagon. They see competitors making splashy news releases about the, uh, the latest breakthrough they're going to launch. And um, there might be, in many cases, a need for a lot of work to begin with. So, I mean, I get a call from people saying, can we do an AI thing? And you walk around their office and they're still walking around with piles of paper in their hands. So there might just be a a bit of work to do around data governance, the digitization agenda in the first place Mm -hmm. before they can start being too advanced. It might be that a number of um, more proven but maybe less uh, cutting-edge technologies such as software robotics are perfectly fit for purpose, just getting good quality data analytics in place first before they go anything too cutting edge. So I think you've got to be honest about where you're at on your journey in terms of your digital transformation agenda first mm-hmm. before you can get too crazy with this. But um, I think the, um, the, the, the number of things that I would recommend to, to uh, organizations looking to do this is not to think about this solely as a, an IT project. If you get it right, the opportunities and the implications could be vast. So therefore, it has got to align with your corporate strategy. It's got to take into account you may well be needing some very different workforce capability in the years to come. Have you got that within your organization? Do you need to build that into your talent acquisition strategy? You have to be super mindful as well of a number of regulatory issues that are coming very quickly on stream I uh, hate to say the word first, but we have GDPR coming on very, very quickly. Uh, and this could prove to be uh, a new risk for um, the AI deployment side of things. On the other side of the fence, and uh, you mentioned Charlie Muirhead at the start and the guys at Cognition X, and, and they've been doing some great work tracking these new vendors coming through. Uh, the, the, the common uh, refrain I hear is that just in the UK alone, we're seeing a new startup in AI hitting the market every five days at the moment. So if you can imagine a a situation where a a company feels like they should do something with AI, there's competitive pressure to innovate, they could probably come up with several hundred use cases across their business in a short period of time. 
And then you look on the other side of the fence, getting bamboozled by the sheer amount of choice on the market from the AI startup community. Mm-hmm. Trying to marry those two together could be a, a very labor-intensive process, but could open up new risk around third-party vendor risk. Mm-hmm. How mature are these organizations? How sophisticated are they at dealing with enterprise-grade security and data governance, regulatory awareness? How resilient will they be as the uh, AI project scales? So there's a number of issues there. Then you're getting into the fact that this hasn't really been done before at this scale. Most of these are quite small experiments where AI is in our lives at the moment is very much as consumers. What's the worst that can happen in movie recommendation engines? You get recommended a poor movie, you're annoyed for a few seconds and move on. One rotten tomato. Yeah, exactly. And as we uh, have spoken about previously, uh, you know, the, the smart algorithms that keep recommending you things that you bought three months ago, you have no need for in your life ever again. Um, When you start applying this to regulated businesses, to really consequential use cases, the issuing of credit and mortgages to customers, the determination of prison sentences and criminal justice use cases and beyond, um, it, it does, of course, cause a degree of anxiety in businesses to do this in a way that is not going to open up new risk. So um, if you think about the way that technology has always been assured and tested and deployed and integrated over decades now, it's been premised on the basis that this is a static deployment. The technology is configured and it's rolled out and it won't change until it falls over. Then you fix it and start again. Here with um, a system that's continually growing its corpus of knowledge through data, iterating, learning, and increasingly offering the promise to make autonomous decisions about your customer data or your staff data, for example, it does open up a whole different approach to assurance and, and, and the ability to make sure the system is consistently giving you what you want. So this comes into some big issues now I'm sure we'll, we'll touch upon around bias in data sets, around um, you know, the, the security of your algorithms, preventing from being adversarially attacked externally we've seen some of that where it's happened in the past um and and how and how often are you inspecting the the ability of this um technology to protect your interests and your customers interests huge plethora of new business risk that if not handled well could stymie innovation and adoption well it's certainly if i'm a ceo listening to this it, it smacks of i need some help to get into it and understand the entire spectrum and scale and scope of this issue. One of the things that obviously leads you, you're, you say you're the evangelist of responsible technology. And so one of the areas that we I wanted to chat with you about is ethics. Because clearly, without regulation, we're, we're on our own to make up some ideas and some decisions on how to use AI and how do we use it smart, quickly, maybe before the regulation gets put in so that like Uber, for example, you dominate the marketplace, you act first and ask for permission or you know forgiveness afterwards. How do you frame the ethical discussion and the challenges that are faced by companies who are looking at using AI and, and potentially want to be responsible but don't have a framework for it? It's um, by some degree one of the, uh, the top topics that comes up in all the talks I give, the ethical considerations, probably along as big as, say, job automation impact, I'm sure we'll touch upon as well. But well, the, Most of the time it seems that yeah. we're talking about 
the cyborg kind of ethics as opposed to actually the nitty-gritty operational AI? Yeah, my, 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 uh, my, my, my biggest concern is that the, um, I think there's very important work on the long-range risks on what's refrained, you know, the, the existential risk, the stuff that the, the tech billionaires will constantly refer to around the singularity and, and all these various other concepts. Hey, they may well be right. What we have, though, needing to be mindful of today, next year, the next three, four, five years is what is very narrow AI. It could be very practically useful, um, but it, it is not going to lead to these uh, dystopian or, or crazily utopian outcomes for a considerable time yet. So let's, um, let, let's just have a quick canter through what's happening. So there are a number of bodies being created. Uh, we've seen uh, a lot of work with bodies I'm associated with, like the, the IEEE, uh, the global nonprofit, looking at the ethical aligned design of this technology. We've seen uh, bodies such as the Partnership on AI, founded by the big six tech firms, and now adding nonprofits in the back of that as well. Just about every major country I've visited or, or been aware of uh, looking at this have some initiative underway, some more joined up than others. I think the UK is clearly taking one of the leading parts along with the academic institutions. Well, I, th- I think there's some very interesting developments in the UK. Um, so off the back of the UK's industrial strategy prior to Christmas, there's a um, big ambition there to, quote, uh, uh, sort of develop or maintain UK as an AI leader. We have to be very clear what we're going to be an AI leader of. Mm. So we don't have the sheer level of scale of investment that the US has. Um, I think I was on a panel with Martha Lane Fox before Christmas, and uh, I think she said that the European tech sector is worth only 8% of the US's. So we can't compete um, you know, directly with uh, the scale of investment. On the other side of the world, we have China with 800 million people online, enormous data set for, for training these algorithms on. We don't have that scale and access to data in that same way. And a government that's keen to progress their status as an innovative technology state. It, it, absolutely, indeed. An enormous ambition there. And, and smaller countries as well starting to uh, uh, push the pedal to the metal, you know, in terms of Canada, the United Arab Emirates. Um, robotics in Japan. Robotics in Japan, in South Korea, etc. Yeah, absolutely right. What the UK, I think, has got a chance to do is very much consolidate its reputation and build on that to be the AI ethics centre um, to really drive best practice globally. So the government have responded with um, the uh, commitment to develop what's called a centre for data ethics and innovation as part of a number of new bodies they're creating. Um, of course, we have um, hard regulation uh, under the auspices of the Information Commissioner. And then more broadly, there's a number of other announcements coming through. The Nuffield Foundation are announcing a convention on data ethics. So you have sort of hard regulation standards and influence in different concentric circles here that are starting to develop quite quickly in 2018. So when a company comes to you say, and you know, I want to do AI, you, you, you raise up an eyebrow and say, hmm, wonder if that's what they should be doing from a responsible standpoint. How do you address that? I, I mean, obviously, you don't, you know, the, the client is king, blah, blah, blah. Yet, you, you, you think you do need to bring some responsibility. How do you bring that in? I think there's some very practical steps companies can take to manage the risk, not eliminate it, but to put the right hygiene factors in, the right safeguards in to um, give them a degree of confidence, comfort, and control. One of the interesting things, I think, is the ability for a company to provide 
challenge and diverse challenge from across the breadth of their organization. So this really underscores the point. This isn't just a standalone IT project. So if you take, for example, a human resources application, something that determines who's accepted and rejected for a job application, for example, have you got enough challenge outside of the technology team to be able to ask the questions that may not be evident? If it can do this, what would be the repercussion if it did that? What new risk would it open us up to? Can we be sure that we're not um, working in a situation where it's going to replicate bias in our current process and amplify it at scale that gives us brand new risk? Have we therefore got an ability to, um, you know, to build trust into the, the data we're feeding into this thing? There have been a number of consumer use cases that haven't worked out great. And this really, again, moves forward, not just to the diversity of the challenge across the breadth of the organization, but the composition of the team itself is more than just a, um, a, a nice-to-have. This is a business imperative now. We, we have a particular gender imbalance within AI development teams, often 80% male, maybe higher. So uh, this it's a critical requirement now that we develop better gender diversity in particular in the workforce. Yeah, it seems to me that, Rob, we, we have not just the diversity gender story or diversity race story, but there's an element of diversity in the types of profiles that are addressing it. In other words, if you just get a bunch of IT folks or and the lawyer folks around the table, legal, <clears throat> then the chances are it's, it's not going to develop the full scope and breadth. So having humanists, sociologists, people like you who aren't specifically geek technologists coming in and helping around the conversation and, and, and framing it with some sense of, you know, the fact is that humans are being impacted, humans need to be involved, and, and how to better use AI. Well, I think this, um, th- th- this, is, uh, this is really the exciting bit for me. Um, I-, I think this is where we're starting to uh, navel gaze and worrying about the careers of the future. This, I think, actually offers up brand new categories of job that has got an AI lens through it, but it's sort of built upon their existing domain. So let me give you some examples. You know, the uh, part of the work I do is with the, uh, the UK's parliamentary group on AI. Over the last 12 months, it's really brought together a rich and diverse group of stakeholders from politicians and business people and technologists and regulators and philosophers and beyond. So even last week alone, I believe, um, the one of the, the uh, uh, religious uh, individuals, uh, one of the bishops, was uh, um, on a, an event with me, and uh, his blog afterwards was uh, he's positing the Ten Commandments of ethical AI. So, I mean, clearly this causes a bit of uh, discussion in the AI community about is it appropriate to bring a religious lens into it. But actually, for me, I think we want participation across the spectrum. I think the next big challenge is um, whilst we have gone from deep tech academia. We've gone into civil society and business now over the last 12 months. The next big opportunity and challenge is how do we engage the general public on whose data this legacy and revolution will take fire? Because I think if you're sitting there as a layman in the general public, you are primarily getting your uh, education of AI through the press. And unfortunately, we're still into this uh, typical tendency towards uh, dystopian mythology Occasionally a bit of utopian, but AI, the word is supplanted with robot. Robot, the best image is Terminator, or benevolent, happy robot shaking hand with human. Making you out of a job. And this 
this is a big, big issue. So alongside the ethical debate, the, the job automation debate is another, another huge topic. So, uh, Rob, you are also a fellow uh, at the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufacturers and Commerce. So I was I raised my eyebrows as I thought about that and what might be the link between your role in the arts and AI. So the, the RSA have been uh, undertaking very interesting work around this field. And uh, I think if you start thinking about the... Um, the, the earlier point around the diversity of contribution to this. And we, we have to be very, very clear now that all previous technological revolutions have led to job displacement. This happened, whether it's the, whether we're saying this is the fourth industrial revolution, some colleagues of mine think it might be the 11th, whatever. It might be important to some people. It's not so much to me. Um, we have to be aware displacement will come. So to give you some facts and figures, as you'd expect, I work for PwC, you might want some numbers here. Um, our analysis suggests that by the early 2030s, up to 30% of UK jobs could become highly susceptible to automation. So that's 10 million workers in the UK workforce. Now, there's far more nuance behind this, clearly. It unfolds at different rates. It affects sectors differently. It affects other countries differently. It affects gender differently and educational attainment differently. So there is much more texture under the numbers there. I won't, uh, I can obviously bore you with the detail too much. I'm sure you can share your listeners with any links on this. But what this does suggest is that roles that are repetitive, are high volume, are repeatable, clearly fall under the scope of automatability, if that's such a word. I don't know if it is. It sounds good to me too. So we have to be aware there will be displacement of tasks within jobs. That is going to happen. What we have to now get right is both from a company's strategy point of view and from a governmental policy point of view is the awareness that you can't just let this technology happen. You have to do it holistically. You have to have your education system sorted out. You have to have the school system gearing up to produce um, workers at the right stage in terms of mindset. To repeat your word from the start there, I think mindset is, is crucial here. We have to move away from training kids to become something that we don't know what will still be evident in 5, 10, 15 years' time. Um, an academic we know very well, Johnny Penn from Cambridge University, uh, refers to uh, the need now to uh, you know, encourage kids to learn to learn because what is clearly going to happen is now the uh, impact across the breadth of your career and your life is imperative need for lifelong learning and constantly refining yourself and not just think, I've been trained now, that's my job for life. That is not going to happen. Well, not to mention the fact that the teachers who are teaching these kids have no idea what the future is, and so how can they teach them what to do in the future? They can only prepare them to be in the future, which is opposed to a little bit the same line. So um, you, i got a couple more areas I wanted to just explore with you. One of them is you know, your work at PwC, you're dealing with in B2B, you're dealing with other companies, and you know, so am I. And I was just was curious as to your experience of, of interacting with business executives because certainly the, the ones at the top end of the, of the pile seem to be extremely harried, over-solicited, and have a trouble keeping up with their own communications, much less figuring out what's going on in new tech. How are you managing that? What's your perspective on that and any tips uh, to provide to us? Well, I, I don't find many of my emails are ever read these days. And I don't have the time to read all the ones that come into my inbox. So um, I do worry about the future of email, with a couple of exceptions. Um, I'm having a tremendous impact on social media platforms and Twitter, LinkedIn in particular. 
but I think it's very much about now the mood shifting from engagement with corporate entities to individual you know, interaction. I get far more engagement on uh, interacting as, a, as an individual than uh, through, a, through a corporate brand, I think. But you've got to have something to say. I don't think you can uh, constantly repeat and parrot what your standard company line is. They want people, clients want people with personality, with opinion, perspective. Um, one uh, individual I, I know quite well, a friend of mine, uh, he's a social selling expert. He refers to the sort of standard approach to companies' uh, uh, you know, marketing spin is uh, corporate vomit. You can see everyone's tuned up to splurge the same material out at the same minute of the day and gets very little engagement. Um, uh, but then again, actually, digital platforms are important, but getting out there in the flesh is probably the most powerful thing. I'm very fortunate to still to this day get invited to come and do a lot of spe- speeches and talks and panels and things like that, and that has huge engagement. Yeah, it, I mean, it does speak to the fact that technology can help but it won't replace all of the human elements, as we know well. So, um, you know, in this world of change and, and you being at the forefront of AI, uh, how do you, upstream do you take care of staying up to date with what's going on? What are your favorite sources? And give us some, uh, you know, direction as to what you would suggest for us to stay up to date. Well, uh, I am a, I'm a self-confessed uh, social media addict, in particular on Twitter. Um, to the point where, in fact, I'm, I'm banned from switching my phone on during uh, my annual leave. I have to write blogs about the fact that I'm going to be off-grid so that uh, people watch me in case I do slip back into bad habits, and which is a really healthy thing, I think, yeah. because uh, you need to detox now and again. But when I'm on stream, I'm properly on stream, I'm a hoover for uh, insightful articles and commentary, uh, get a huge amount of the uh, feeds through uh, social media and Twitter in particular, um, subscribe to a number of um, uh, newsletters, so uh, probably get the Cognition X guys through every every day. Um, particular favourite of mine is uh, Azim Azar's Exponential View on a Sunday, to the point when I saw Azim last time, I think I mentioned to him that uh, it's probably even replaced my appetite to go down and buy the, the Sunday paper now, because it's far more interesting than uh, than what I'm seeing in the in the press. So uh, certainly I, I just then start getting fed a lot of interesting insights from various bodies across the world. Uh, so uh, do you have any insights as to how to set that up? I mean, let's say, first of all, do you believe Twitter has a future? And then two, when you're in LinkedIn or Twitter, how do you organize yourself? Because uh, rather than have a vomit coming in of lots of things, how do you know what's the good th- what are the good things? Um, well, I've certainly got a good eye and nose for fake news. So <laughs> I think I can weed that out myself. Uh, I mean, it's mainly on the quality of the individual person that's posted the information which i'll trust and prioritize or bookmark for later to prioritize a reading of and which one's just to skim out of my and how do you know that the individual is trustworthy i mean because you may or may not know the individual personally do you have like a, a little tip as to how to figure out the trustworthiness I don't know, someone, someone, um, we've got an amazing data lab in our other building and uh, someone did a visual representation of my social media footprint and it was something I couldn't explain, but it was a remarkable interplay of all these different nodes and connections and things like that. So uh, I'm I'm absolutely someone that has always been hyper-connected, not just super-connected. So I think there's always a way of cross-referencing unconsciously whether someone stands up to scrutiny in your external network. So beyond the ones that... Uh, you know, you've met, and I do get the chance to meet a lot of very interesting people. 
where I believe I can weigh them up in the flesh. Um, the ones I don't, I believe that they've been cross-referenced enough in my background psyche to believe that their word stands up to scrutiny. I think this is something that a lot of executives who are, haven't taken the time, quote-unquote, to be hyper-connected, they may have created the Twitter account, and they're like, well, that's not a waste of time. And they don't get that element, that sort of more subtle understanding of how the network actually works. Yeah, and, and I think there's, um, there's, there's a lot of people that only go into it half-heartedly. So I think of it as a living, breathing, digital representation of, of myself. So it has to have personality, it has to have opinions, has to be a little bit slightly off message now and again. Mm. Um, a little you, you mean? A, a mini-me, exactly. Um, but the critical thing here is, is you've got to converse. You can't just splurge out insights. I, I'm always super careful to ensure I've responded, apart from the trolls, um, to uh, hopefully share insight, connect people, and uh, have a mindset of connecting people for no expectation of a return mm. uh, because these things do pay off in the long term. Love it, Rob. So how can someone, what's the best way to track you down and follow you? What are the best ways? So, uh, well, absolutely on Twitter, so at Rob McCargo. Uh, connect on LinkedIn, um, but it's unlikely if you send me an email, I'll ever respond. Brilliant. Thanks for coming on the show, Rob. Great to talk to you about AI. And I look forward to following what you're doing and hopefully see you at Coex soon. Thank you, Minter. Great to be here today. Thank you. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on MinterDial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please like the handy Facebook button. Or better yet, head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. But first, relax to Josh Sachs's finger paint. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way to rid me of the gray. You mentioned in your lack of self security. Oh, I wouldn't care about the art form as long as you would feel warm, wrapped in canvas. Hold me tightly, slowly we would paint a lover's portrait with all your favorite shades. Colors on the canvas as we
My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out.